0: People want to go to a place where they are, where one, they know they can get a great education, but two, they are going to be nurtured in a way that they can they can be free and expressive and not have to apologize for who they are or the way they look, or apologize for for the race that they're in. I mean, it's just it's a liberating experience for African Americans who graduate for or who are on these campuses. Welcome to Innovating Together, a
1: podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman.
2: Today we're joined by uh, Dietrich Trent, who is the Executive Director of the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges and Universities, which is an important role. And uh, she was previously Secretary of Education for the State of Virginia. Welcome, Dr. Trent. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Doug and Bridget, for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Well, we're excited to, to learn from you and you're in an interesting position, but you also, I mean, we have so
1: many questions I, I would just want to kick off in terms of you telling the audience what it's like in terms of the difference between that prior role being secretary of education for a state to now being in an appointed position in, in the White House and actually representing or, or working on behalf of and for an entire sector of institutions. I think those are very different roles and I'm just wondering how, as a leader, what, what has been the shift that you'd notice
0: well you know i think i think for both positions well both positions were in terms of leadership quality i mean i think i pulled down on the same qualities except one as secretary of education my portfolio was much larger than it is today um, when i was secretary i had 16 public colleges under me i had 23 community colleges i had the department of Education. The State Council on Higher Education. I had five higher ed centers and five cultural arts art centers, so the portfolio was much larger than it is um, with our HBCUs. Although I do have a, I work with and for um, 102 HBCUs. I I can't say that the qualities that I that I learned at As Secretary of Education really um, helped me, I think, in this role, prepare me for this role in a major kind of way.
2: Can you give us a little bit of a sense of how you view the difference between the state and federal role, particularly, I guess, related to these institutions? You had the federal government has significant imprint on higher education, particularly when it comes to the bully pulpit. You had probably more governing and, and directive control over the colleges and universities you oversaw in Virginia than you do here. How does that affect it all, sort of the way you think about, about your role?
0: Well, in Virginia, our colleges and universities are all independent. We don't have a system. And so it's really um, not as different as you might think it is. Hmm. You know, I have the bully pulpit for the most part in this role, and and that's what I had in the last role, right? And so, working with our colleges and universities, really trying to, in in as secretary, you know, really working with the governor and making sure that we align with his priorities and his vision for higher education. We did a lot around workforce. We did a lot around with our um, community colleges because we had so many jobs that were available that did not necessarily require a four-year degree, but it did require post-secondary education. Worked really closely with them, but the but the whole notion behind what I do is really, you know, using the bully pulpit not to not as a hammer. But really understanding that in order for me to be effective in my role i have to have a collaborative spirit and i need to work with our colleges and universities and that's the posture that i take in this role too it's really about you know me delivering on behalf of our hbcus but i have to work with 37 federal agencies in order to get that done and i can't be successful unless I am willing to roll up my sleeves and actually get um, get in the weeds with those 37 agencies and really to work with them to try to find opportunities um, for our HBCUs.
1: As I think about those roles, I think uh, I'm, I'm kind of relieved for you in that it's, it's almost like being a bit narrower, being a bit more focused. I mean, being Secretary of Education, I mean, just all those different entities that you would have to, it's impossible to keep everyone happy. And it's also really difficult when you have constituencies with fundamentally competing perspectives and interests working on behalf of HBCUs that would that would actually be a, I'm relieved for you that sounds much nicer in terms of um, having a clear group that you can go deep and really understand their needs and then look for an effective path to advocate on their behalf
0: yeah I think I think when I was at when I was with the state and Secretary of Education it was really important for me to be able to convey the vision for this for the Commonwealth. And really help our agencies to understand how they fit into that vision and how they were actually what they were doing was really complementing what we're what we're trying to get from our um, higher ed. You know, to some, to some extent, depending on the college, it was a little harder than than others. The idea is to, is to convey the vision and then work real closely with them and let them know how important it is that they help us meet. Um, get, to that, get to the point where the, where the governor was actually leading us. It's a little more narrow now. It's just as daunting because mm-hmm. I have 102 HBCUs and they're all different mm-hmm. and they all have different needs. The issue that I've struggled with in this role is whether, what are those two or three issues that I can really focus on in the next two years that's going to move the needle for all of them? One would think that that might be an easy thing to do, but it's really not as easy as I thought it was going to be.
2: HBCUs have, I don't know, from my vantage point, have certainly been having a moment the last couple of years, influenced by a lot of factors, I think, including the racial justice movement of a couple of years ago, or that, that took off a couple of years ago. And we've been seeing a lot more attention paid to them. We've seen certain students, I think, flocking to them, uh, looking for a uh, place where they they feel at home. We actually just mentioned that they were Uh, attracting staff, certain kinds of employees and staffs that they uh, might not have been able to before, but they remain, you know, historically underfunded, et cetera. I guess when you're talking to the broad audience of higher education right now, what should they know about the moment and, and sort of about the status of HBCUs in this moment, sort of what the issues are that you're focusing on, those two to three issues you mentioned? How much of a moment are the HBCUs having and how much is it really changing their underlying situation? What does the government need to do potentially to to influence that?
0: That's a great question. I would say that the biggest challenge for me is that you are absolutely right. This is a moment for our HBCUs, but it's also important that we, we turn that moment into a movement. HBCUs, as you mentioned, have been historically underfunded, underrepresented, underappreciated for over almost 200 years, right? The first HBCU is Cheney University that was established in 1837. That's 28 years before the end of slavery. And these are schools that were were established to educate free free slaves and their descendants. So we've been around for a long, long time. And over that course of the years, we have produced nothing but leaders, not nothing but leaders, we have produced a lot of African-American leaders in this country. Even today, 85% of our federal judges started at an HBCU. 85% of PhDs were at an HBCU. Our teachers, over 50% of teachers, of engineers started at an HBCU. 40% of STEM, Blacks in STEM, graduated from an HBCU. And I could go on and on and on. You know, 75% of, of MDs and, and dentists graduated from an HBCU. So we've been around for a long time and we've been we've been in leadership roles for a long time. but I think as you mentioned after George Floyd, people are now beginning to take notice of us, not only corporate America but also our you know African Americans, right? you know as you mentioned, we have a lot of our a lot of the um, universities are showing a decline in enrollment. HBCUs are increasing in, in enrollment. You know, we have a lot of our students who want to go there. These are schools of choice now, because people want to go to a place where they are. Where one, they know they can get a great education, but two, they are going to be nurtured in a way that they can they can be free and expressive and not have to apologize for who they are or the way they look, or apologize for for the race that they're in. I mean, it's just it's a liberating experience for. African-Americans who graduate from or who are on these campuses? Well, I
1: can tease out further. So I, You and I talked about this, that um, we work with North Carolina A&T and they are incredible. Um, I have good friends who are presidents of HBCUs and, and work at HBCUs. And, and so sitting in this moment, what I have picked up is, you know, there's, there's an influx of philanthropy and resources, but HBCUs are universities who are also struggling with all the same problems that the rest of higher ed is experiencing. But they've also, it's on top of this chronic underfunding and not being centered and not being, and being treated as the other by the sector for far too long. You know, you still have some of these difficulty getting hired, hiring up and ramping up with all the, you know, you get a big McKinsey stack if that's incredible, but- Still, are dealing with the exact same staff that we've had, um, and trying to be able to recruit folks. So I would just say, what I asked you was, you know, if you had a message for philanthropy that's um, that wants to 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 do right and to to center the needs of HBCUs, any guidance or coaching you would provide? Because for me, I was like, I'm I see that money is not just the solution if, with most institutions, but in particular right now, this is a space for a little bit of grace.
0: Yeah, no, and that's a, That's an absolutely great question. Um, And you're absolutely right. HBCUs have been underfunded for so long that it's just very hard for us to compete with predominantly white institutions. And this has been going on for so long. In 2018, all 101 HBCUs combined got less than $400 million in R&D funding from the federal government. And that same year, John Hopkins got... $2.6 $2.6 billion. And the reason that makes a difference is because within the federal government, there is overhead costs that universities can use when they're doing research and programs for um, federal government. And so when our HBCUs have chronically been locked out of research in these programs for now centuries, almost almost century, two centuries, then we have a lot of catching up in terms of building out our infrastructure. And our infrastructure, you know, when we talk about infrastructure at predominantly white institutions, we're really talking about bricks and mortar, right? When we talk about infrastructure at an HBCU, we're talking about bodies, we're talking about processes that other universities have had an opportunity and had the resources to build up and build out over time. So when philanthropy comes in and and say, we're going to give you, you know, $30 million and I need you to go forth and do great things, our universities are saying, okay, but we got to hire up. We got to put these processes in place. We got to make sure we have the right broadband. We got to, you know, so the things that we take for granted from a predominantly white institution, and i I work at two, not only that I've worked with, 16 in the state. The things that we take for granted, especially at our private HBCUs, at, at PWIs, our HBCUs are really challenged because, again, we have not had that same opportunity to have a seat at the table when it comes to federal government or anyone else doling out money or research opportunities. So when you talk about that, you know, right now, Carnegie has classifications, research classifications. I can't remember exactly how many they are. I know there's over 150, Mm -hmm. but none of our HBCUs are R1 status, which is the highest status for research. We have 12 that are R2 status, which means that they're up to a certain point. But even our R2 universities, to some extent, are still struggling with Putting the 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 little I infrastructure in place in order for them to go after some of the larger grants that they need.
1: I think that's helpful caveat because I think it's not just money that's the solution. And you think about all the problems that you think about in every other every part of higher ed right now burnout. Uh, can't hire people. Uh, really, still, still struggling with the hybrid concept. Still struggling with integrating le- lessons learned from COVID. Um, now, multiplied times, chronic underfunding and and being disrespected, not not centered in the way that you should be for a very long time. And um, that's not going to be turned around immediately. So we just need to um, have the long view. And I, I would say,
0: I would say to philanthropy, you know, please do continue to support our HBCUs, but also, you know. Just beyond money, if you have, if you have resources in terms of, of expertise as it relates to systems or as it relates to, to going after grants and proposals, then our HBCUs would be more willing and would, would, would actually really love and appreciate that just as much mm-hmm. because it positions them to actually go after more, um, more research dollars or more federal programs.
1: I think that's great. And I, I would add, you know, from me over here in the corner, Predominantly white institutions need to learn how to learn from HBCUs about what best practices to serve and support truly support Black students looks like. It is not just admitting more students. You want to not feel like you are the only Black student in a classroom. You look at who the faculty are. You look at the priorities of the institution. So PWIs how they learn from model and and try and benefit from the wisdom and expertise of HBCUs. That is, I think, the chapter
0: ahead. Um, Can I give you an example of that? Yeah. Because whenever I whenever I go on campus on these campuses, I make it a point to really sit down with students to really find out what their experience has been, you know, what are they getting from their HBCUs, what kind of challenges are they facing. And I was on one campus, this was very shortly after I, I started in this role, I was on one campus and this young lady told me that she was the only one that semester, she was the only person who signed up for a class that she needed in order to graduate. And instead of counseling the class, like most places would do, because she's only one person, her faculty member had her report to her, come to her office every Tuesday and Thursday for two hours. She said she would, they would put on, she would put on tea. They would have tea in class. And she told her, and she said she did that so that she would be able to graduate on time. Otherwise she would have had to go another year before that class was offered again. Her sister who was attending an, a PWI had the exact same experience and she ended up having to go another year because she did not have the option to go sit down in, this, in her faculty members office and have class. And the student told me that as a result of that, every decision that she makes from this point on will be based on whether or not that professor would would approve of it or how that professor would receive it the nurture that these students receive on these campuses is really what makes a difference and i can tell you that's what happened to me when i was at hampton mm-hmm. you know just having faculty to say you can do this and this is We're going to work with you and you're going to make the. we're going to make this happen together. It makes a big difference when you have people there who know you by name and people who say every day through their actions and in their words that we care for you and we're going to make these sacrifices for you.
1: That's great. Students definitely feel it. Well, Dr. Trent, I want to turn to you. We've talked a bit more about HBCUs than we were expecting, which is it's a rich topic as a leader. Do you think that you've had a model that you followed that's a great example that has taught you the most, or do you feel like you saw an example of what not to do, and that's where you learn the most about leadership? I'm curious about kind of you as a leader, um, if there is any one person who, or figure, or or model role model that that you learned the most from. Was it a good example or a bad one?
0: I, I learned from both good and bad. Actually, <laughs> um, I would say that my role model would be my grandmother. My grandmother actually taught taught first grade in public schools for 40 years. When she retired, then she started volunteering with a whole bunch of organizations until she, she turned 85. Um, so she spent her whole life in public service and just giving back. She gave so much of herself and poured so much of herself, not only into her students, but into her community that it was just, I learned so much from her and I think I, I know that I am here today because of her. She really pushed me out there at an early age to, to speak and to do some public things. And so um, she carried me around everywhere she went to whatever the meetings were. And I remember saying to her that, if when I, this was after I graduated from school, that if I could just do one half of what, and give one half of what she has given, then I felt like my life will have have had meaning and will, would not have been in vain. The one thing that I learned, and 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 I say all of that just to just to so let you just to say this about leadership. And that is when I became Secretary of Education, I and as I re, was reflecting on her and where I was, you know, I had an opportunity every year to do a reception and congratulate the teacher of the year. You know, there are often times when we would do letters from the governor commending a teacher for whatever they're doing or a principal. You know, my grandmother was never the recipient of, she was never the teacher of the year. She was never recognized by a governor or the president for that matter. But when she passed, the number of people who came in and talked about how she touched their lives and and what she did and what she poured into her was so meaningful to me. And it made me realize at that moment that leadership is not about a title or a position, but it really is about your posture, right? And and only when you have a posture to serve others, can you really bring out the best in other people. And so she taught me from from example, what a true leader was about, and it really isn't. I happen to be fortunate enough to have a title, but I still have not measured up to her leadership.
1: That's great. Well, she sounded wonderful.
0: She was wonderful.
2: What What surprises you about your career path so far? I We've spent a lot of time talking to people about sort of uh, not necessarily accidental developments. A lot of people on this show talk about sort of what has unexpectedly happened to them in their career in terms of the, the direction it took. When you look at where you are today and, and think back to sort of what your plans were, such as you had them, where have things gone, not as you expected in a positive or a negative way?
0: only way I can answer that is to just say that I am a very spiritual person. I like to spend a lot of time with God. And so I'm always surprised at my, where I'm going and where he's taking me. I never plan. I never sit down and say, okay, God, this is, here's where I want to go next. It's like, okay, God, half suitcase, where are you taking me next? Right. So, I mean, I think, I think when you ask me what surprises me, everything surprises me. I never thought I would be in this role. I never thought I would be secretary of education. Never thought that. Never thought I'd even be deputy secretary. Never thought I would work for politicians. You know, but it's just amazing. Once you kind of give into what you were created to do, the path that you go along, right? I remember um, when President Biden first won, I had a number of people, including politicians, to reach out to me and say, You should really apply for the Biden administration. You should put in your name for the Biden administration. And I remember saying to them, There's one role that I would do in that administration, and that's the White House initiative on the HBCUs. But I never applied because, you know, Kamala Harris is a HBCU grad. I was like, I'm sure she's got that covered. Six months in, they reached out to Ann Holton, who's a really good friend of mine. The White House reached out to Ann Holton on another um, as a reference for someone else. After she spoke to them about that person, she asked about this role, and they said they had not filled it. And she said, oh, "Well, I have the perfect person," and the rest was history. So it's just it's just interesting, you know. And I say all of that to say that I don't I don't try to plan it. But it gets better and better and better with each role like I never thought after I left um, being Secretary of Education, I could I I never thought that I would have another role that would be nearly as fulfilling and nearly as challenging. But then I went to George Mason and I served as Ann Holton's chief of staff. And that was a whole different type of work, you know, to be able to be that person who to be chief of staff is is that person who can go to her and say, okay, this is not the way we want it. You know, so it's it's a real personal relationship and her standards are so high. So it really just kind of built muscle, um, leadership muscle that in me that I didn't know that I had. But it really made me appreciate the opportunity to just be there and be needed in that way. And and it was the most one of the most challenging times, right? That was the day, the year that COVID hit. And so there was a lot of stress anyway and a lot of tension, but I really felt like my role really served a real purpose. Leaving there and coming here. You know, I, I knew I wanted to do this job. I would love to do this job. Um, but being in this role is just the most amazing job I've ever had. And I and I will tell you, my next role my next job is gonna be even better. So. <laughs>
1: I feel the same way and that I always am consistently surprised that I, whatever I do ends up being even more interesting. Um, that's the greatest gift is following like, kind of yeah. your nose when it comes to things that you're passionate about and you want to create impact. So um, yeah, that's a nice confidence to have. So now we're wrapping up on the end of the show and I, uh, I want to give you the rapid fire questions, which I'll just give you a heads up. We want to know the best advice that someone else has given you that has served you in your career. We also want to know what advice you find yourself giving to young aspiring leaders, people who are interested in a kind of role like you have. And then if there's any books that you frequently find yourself recommending most often when you're trying to coach or guide or mentor others into leadership. So we'll start with uh, the advice that has served you. Who gave it and what was it?
0: I think as a child, my father would always try and still certain values in me. One is to be proud of who you are. Two is to be true to who you are. And three, to be honest at all times. Right. And so I think the most the advice that I like to give younger people is really really be true to who you are. Right? Don't try to fit into somebody else's mold. Don't try to fit into somebody else's standard. You're created in a in a very unique and beautiful and wonderful way, so just be true to yourself. That's the advice that I that I most often give, especially to younger people. I and mean, that's also, you know, the advice that I generally, you know, constantly tell myself, like, do you really want to do that? You know, so you're still having those conversations throughout your life to make sure that you really are being true to yourself and that, and that you're in this, not for the glam and the glory, but you're in it because you really want to make a difference. You're in it because you feel like you have something to contribute. You know, one of the things that I, I, I really focused on when I first was offered to this role was, you know, to just really pray about not getting caught up in the, in the, in the who I was working with or working for, but to really get caught up in why I'm here and what I need to do and what I need to accomplish, right? And so really being honest about with yourself about why you're doing what you're doing. If it's for recognition or glam or glory, then it's probably not the role for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that stuff's always the hollowest. Yeah. Um,
1: it's like, uh, like saccharin. Just- No. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Is there a book that you you frequently use the most for yourself that was most informative for your professional journey? Or is there a book that you often say, oh, you got to read this?
0: So the most recent book on leadership would be um, Stacey Abrams' Lead from the Outside. Um, And I really enjoyed that book because she really does, it does a lot of what we're talking about here, really challenging herself. Why does she get out there? Why does she run? What was the difference that she was really making and to be able to 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 look back after that loss and find so much value in why she did what she did. I, I enjoyed that book. That was a, a great book. In this role, I don't have a whole lot of time to read books, especially on leadership. I usually my reading is on HBCUs, but that was the last book that I read on leadership and I really did like enjoy it.
1: That's wonderful. Well, thank you, that's a great recommendation. It's been really wonderful to get to have a, a conversation about where we are in the state of the world in terms of supporting and recognizing the value of HBCUs, um, but also you as a leader. So we really appreciate you spending the time. I know that you're sick. I was, I'm recovering from dental surgery. So, you know, we're just hobbling along over here and Doug is just, uh, is leading the way. But for everybody hey. at home, we hope you have a nice break over the next few weeks. We hope you get some time away and that you can come back fresh and bright eyed and, and bushy tailed and into the new year so um we wish you all well and thank you again for the time
0: great See thank you. you so much